On behalf of Pastor Mark Driscoll, we want to thank you for allowing us to bring you Jesus-centered Bible teaching. Like Pastor Mark always says, it's all about Jesus. To get all of Pastor Mark's sermons, blogs, books, and other content, please visit us at markdriscoll.org. There you can also sign up to receive additional free content from Pastor Mark and support this ministry with a gift of any amount. Thank you. Howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. We are starting an 18-week series on Ecclesiastes called uh, Meaningless Life. The world's wisest fool tells it like it is. Working from home today and the kids are a little sick, so if you hear a little one drop in, uh, you know what's going on. Uh, let me go ahead and pray, and uh, we'll jump into what is one of my favorite books of all time. Father God, thank you for an opportunity to uh, open the scriptures and to examine an ancient book that in every way absolutely applies to contemporary, current, modern-day, everyday trials and troubles and tribulations. Uh, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to help us to learn and when all is said and done, to have a deeper affection and appetite for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Well, as we uh, jump into Ecclesiastes, I was thinking about it, and when I was a kid, I watched a lot of Sesame Street. Maybe you did the same, and perhaps you remember the, the one recurring segment of the show where they would put four quadrants up on the screen, and uh, kids' faces would appear in each quadrant, and three of the kids were similar, and one of the kids was unique, and they would ask a little question, you know, which kid isn't like the others, and which kid isn't the same? Well, that kid's Ecclesiastes. He is the eccentric in the class. He is the kid who isn't like the other kids, the, the kid that's so brilliant, so insightful, um, so brooding, so contemplative, uh, that he's the kid standing over in the corner pondering the Dalai Lama versus Derrida on the meaning of life while the other kids are wandering around eating crayons. That, that, that's kind of how Ecclesiastes appears to me. And just like uh, an eccentric, brilliant, unique kid, um, not a lot of people know that kid because they don't understand him. Ecclesiastes is a book of the Bible like that. A lot of people don't understand Ecclesiastes because it's just so unique. The tone, the tenor, uh, the temperament is so altogether different than the rest of the Bible that it quite frankly just doesn't read like what you're going to read in many other sections of the scriptures. And so the result is we all have heard about Jesus, especially the baby Jesus around Christmas time. Um, even non-Christians know something about a prodigal son or a good Samaritan and don't want to be anybody's scapegoat. Uh, the real studious among us, you know, load up like a Sherpa all their commentaries and Greek and Hebrew interlinearies, and they try to uh, scale the ascents of uh, the biblical K2 of Romans or the Mount Everest of Revelation. Uh, maybe you've uh, done some work yourself and the biographies about Jesus called the Gospels or uh, certain books of the Bible like the Psalms and the beautiful, poetic, emotive songs. The truth is, though, not a lot of people have done a lot of work on Ecclesiastes. It's just altogether different. It's, it's like entering into a parallel universe that you enter through a dark mind shaft. If somebody read it to you, if you just had somebody read you Ecclesiastes aloud and didn't tell you it was part of the Bible, you'd swear you were overhearing a conversation from a philosophy class at a community college. It's just that unique, eccentric, different, dark, brooding, marauding book of the Bible. It seems to say in almost every significant way that life is meaningless, it's hopeless, it's fatal, it's worthless. Uh, some have said that it's a goose chase with no goose. Um, the result is that not a lot of people have studied it in comparison to other books of the Bible. And even the great Protestant reformers, uh, the guys that I love quite a bit, uh, they didn't really write commentaries on Ecclesiastes. They didn't really teach on it. And if you go through their works, they rarely, if ever, even quoted. It's a section of literature, the wisdom literature is, we'll get into that in a moment, but the book of Ecclesiastes is in particular an area that is uh, still very much unmined, I would say. And it's a daunting book. You can't just jump right into Ecclesiastes any more than uh, a little kid who's never swam can just jump off the high dive and assume they'll figure it out when they hit the water. Uh, the first book of the Bible I publicly taught through verse by verse was Ecclesiastes, and it did not, it did not go well at all. That was like trying to learn how to drive 
uh, on a highway during rush hour with a stick shift in a snowstorm while blindfolded. It just it did not end well, and I should have known better. It's a tough, tough book. You can get lost easily and quickly. You can get confused very, very, very simply. But just to set the stage a bit for Ecclesiastes, it was written roughly a thousand years before the Lord Jesus even walked on the earth. And uh, you may have heard, as I heard in college, that uh, philosophy really started with the Greeks. So Epimenides, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, we were told, or I was told, that those were some of the founding fathers of philosophy and that their works were the precedent for for philosophical work as we know it today. Yet what we find is that, in fact, uh, the Hebrews, God's people in the Old Testament, they really um, did the first philosophy long before uh, the Greeks had Socrates. Well, the Hebrews had Solomon. And when we get to the wisdom literature in the Bible, we're talking about really practical stuff. Uh, We're talking about pots, pans, pants, pain, pleasure, and purpose. And the Old Testament wisdom literature, uh, it includes Job, which examines the problem of evil and human suffering. Um, The question, why why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, Song of Songs is about beauty and love and pleasure and marriage and romance and affection. Um, Proverbs is on how to worship God with everything, your finances, your friends, your family, the totality of life. And uh, Ecclesiastes is on the meaning of life. What is the purpose and point of life? And it really is the middle of the three most important questions that, uh, that the Bible answers. Where do we come from? Well, we come from God. Where are we going? Well, we're going to God. Why are we here? That's what Ecclesiastes examines. And that middle question is really contingent on, on the question on either side. If we came from God and we're going to God, we're here for God. Uh, stylistically, Ecclesiastes really rambles. It repeats itself. It wanders. Uh, sometimes it, it seems to perhaps even, it doesn't, but it seems to almost perchance contradict itself. It's hard to grasp. It's, it's, it's difficult to understand. And the point is, life's like that. Life's like that. Uh, the medium is the message in this instant. Life is tough. Life is complicated. If, if you try to chart and graph life out, good luck. If you try to make your life fit into neat categories that are easily explainable and understandable, good luck. Life is not a math equation. It's not that easy. And <clears throat> one more thing, to the best of my knowledge, and I, I could be wrong, but to the best of my knowledge, I think Ecclesiastes might be the only book in the Bible in which God is absolutely, totally silent, doesn't break in and say anything. That's really unique. In other books of the Bible, it's God speaking to someone or someone having a conversation or a dialogue with God. This This is a monologue. This is one person on the earth speaking up regarding God and life on the earth under God. It is not God coming down. It is not God speaking down to that person. Well, we set the stage. We'll jump right in. The history's wisest fool, Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse one. These are the words of the teacher, King David's son who ruled in Jerusalem. I'm using the New Living Translation. It uh, it reads pretty easy in the Old Testament wisdom literature. If you have a different translation, great. The best translation is the one you'll read. Here's what he says. Again, Uh, These are the words of the teacher, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem. So uh, one of the things that's helpful, we don't get this in every book of the Bible, uh, is to know the author, the content maker, the originator. Just like when you answer your phone, it helps a lot if you've got caller ID, because when you know who it is you're speaking to, it's a lot easier to enter into uh, their communication and to interpret it. If you don't know who you're talking to, it's kind of hard to know what you're talking about. So right out of the chute, we're, we're honored and blessed. Ecclesiastes has got enough complexities that in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 1, verse 11, um, we learn some things about the great King Solomon. We learn, in fact, uh, that uh, some of your translations will call him Koaleth, which means a, a preacher or a teacher or one who addresses a gathering of people. Some people will say that Solomon didn't write Ecclesiastes, but I think there are some reasons to believe that he did. First, uh, well, he says right here that he's uh, King David's son. Uh, second, he says that he's the king in Jerusalem. 
Uh, third, as you read the book, he's obviously brilliant, very concerned with wisdom. And uh, Jesus says in Matthew 12, 42, that he was wiser than Solomon, but he acknowledged that, that Solomon lived and was a source of great wisdom and instruction. Fourth, um, we know from Jesus' words in Matthew 12, and as well as in 1 Kings 10 and 2 Chronicles 9, that, uh, that he lived during the time of the Queen of Sheba. And fifth, uh, we, as you read the book, it becomes readily apparent that whoever the author is, is absolutely loaded, wealthy beyond imagination. That is consistent with everything we read about Solomon and the rest of scriptures. And, and sixth, we, we learn throughout the book of Ecclesiastes that whoever the author was, he oversaw enormous building projects. And so all of that really points to King Solomon. And I would say the burden of proof is on those who would disagree. If it's not Solomon, then who, who has this resume? Who fits this criteria? If you want to read more on the, the great life of the great King Solomon, uh, 1 Kings chapter 1 through chapter 11 has a lot to say. 2 Chronicles chapter 1 through chapter 9 has a lot to say. And 2 Samuel 7 and verses 11 and, or chapters 11 and 12 rather. So 2 Samuel uh, chapters 7, 11, and 12 have a lot to say. Let me summarize a little bit of it for you. Um, his biography would make some sort of crazy, tell-all, scandalous, blockbuster, made-for-TV movie. Uh, his dad was the great King David. Who's his mom? Do you remember the story, if you know it? Bathsheba. She was a married woman whom David committed adultery with. She became pregnant to cover the whole thing up. David uh, murdered her husband, or he had him murdered out on the battlefield. Uh, that child died, and then uh, sometime later they had Solomon. So you're talking about a, a scandal-ridden family. Uh, he, uh, King Solomon, assumed the throne. He ruled for 40 years as king during a time of peace and prosperity. And uh, and Solomon got this amazing opportunity to ask God for anything he wanted. It's not the same, but it's kind of like, you know, grant me one wish. Well, his wish was to get wisdom. And God was so pleased with his answer that he gave him wisdom and a whole lot more. So next to the Lord Jesus, uh, Solomon is the wisest man who has ever lived in the history of the world. He wrote, around 3,000 Proverbs, about 1,005 songs, if memory serves me correct, wrote or edited three books of the Bible. He wrote the Song of Songs, I believe, parts of Proverbs and also Ecclesiastes. Um, he was visited during his 40-year reign of peace by kings from all over the earth to inquire of him. He oversaw the building of God's temple. It took, according to my best calculations, over 153,000 men, seven years to build before he commissioned it in prayer, saw fire come down from heaven to consume a sacrifice as God's presence entered the temple. Wow, I mean, you, can't, you can't get a more epic life than that. And even though he took seven years to build the temple, his own private residence took 13 years to construct, filled with gold, he sat on a gold and ivory throne every year. The Bible says he had horses imported from Egypt. Fleets of ships would bring ivory and gold. And you talk about a complicated family life. You think there's drama in your family and the holidays get awkward. Consider this. He had around 700 wives and 300 concubines. 700 wives and 300 concubines. So he had a palace or palaces just filled with his wives and their, their children. If you think about it, he nearly could have eaten three meals a day, every day for an entire year with a different wife or concubine. That's how many women were part of his family. I mean, the, the complexity, the intrigue, the infighting, the backstabbing, it had to be just unprecedented, unparalleled. And, and unbelievable. And so what we're looking at here with King Solomon is history's salutorian, right? Jesus is the valedictorian, but he's the salutorian. And he, he asks this question. It's the same question that every kid in a punk rock band and their mom and dad going through a midlife crisis ask. And it is this, 
what is the meaning of life? And so he uses his life as a bit of an experiment. It's like he is both the, uh, the researcher and the subject. And, and he seeks to pursue anything and everything that might make life meaningful. But, but here's, the, here's the key. There's no limitation to his resources. If you took Bill Gates and Stephen Hawking and Hugh Hefner and somehow genetically engineered them into one man and he was simultaneously Pope and president, we might name him Solomon. That's, that's the position that he's in. He is the king. This is not a democracy. He is the law. Um, he owns the land. He owns people. He owns money. He has wisdom. And, and God has been exceedingly gracious to him. There's nothing that he wants that he can't get. There's nothing that he seeks to experience that he can't obtain. There's, there's no one that he longs to rule over that he can't conquer. There's nothing that is beyond his grasp. Just even conceive of that for a moment. If there was no distance between your desires and your realities, anything you thought you could obtain or experience, that's his life. And he undertakes this massive lifelong experiment to see what the meaning of life is. And here's the good news. If, if you're someone who's got a bad past, maybe you didn't get it right the first time. Maybe your dad was not a great guy. Maybe your mom was not a great gal. Maybe you've wasted some years. If there's hope for him, there's hope for you. If there's hope for me, there's hope for you. I mean, here's a guy, his dad was a murderer and an adulterer. His mom was an adulterer. He grew up to be an adulterer and an idolater and possibly even a murderer. Some of his wives worshiped foreign gods and he built temples and high places for them to worship their false gods, perhaps even demon gods. And some of those false religions included in their worship child sacrifice. So Solomon is, is, not, is not a great moral upright example. None of us would want our child or our children to grow up to be just like him. My belief is that the story of Solomon is the story of a prodigal son. That early in his life, he belonged to the Lord and he fell in love with a woman and he wrote the book Song of Solomon or Song of Songs about love and his first wife. Throughout his life and his life's experiment, he wrote some of the Proverbs and collected them and then I believe that he writes Ecclesiastes at the end of his life. After he has wandered far from his heavenly father and he spent plenty of time cavorting and finds himself face down in the proverbial pig slop, he comes to his senses and he comes home to his father. I, I believe that is probably, most likely, the story of Solomon. And I believe after indulging himself for an entire lifetime, he sits down to write an honest autobiography. And some will tell you that, you know, perhaps the first autobiography written was by uh, Augustine in his book, Confessions. Well, um, all he was doing is following the example of certain books of the Bible, including Ecclesiastes. I think it's an autobiography. I think he's looking back at his hollow, shallow, empty, vain, meaningless, painful, brief life experiment. And he is saying, if you want life to be meaningful, Nothing rivals life with God. Nothing rivals obedience to God. Nothing rivals intimacy with God. Nothing rivals the presence and the passions and the pleasures of God. And I believe he's writing in large part to young people. So if you're listening to this, and I can now say this, I'm no longer young. In the Bible, you're young up to about 40, and then you're just a person or an old person. Well, I'm, I'm over that. I'm no longer young and, and his words are making more sense than ever. But if you're young, I think they're particularly for you. And what he's doing is he's, he's writing in particular to younger people who are just in the starting blocks of life or just fresh out of the starting blocks of life. And they're just beginning their race around the track. And he's saying, don't do it like I did. Don't run in my lane. Don't follow in my footsteps. I'm telling you there's nothing there. That being said, there's a key word in Ecclesiastes. The book really doesn't make any sense unless you really do some time considering this word. And it's a word that appears, depending upon which English translation of the Bible you like in the 12 chapters, 37 or 38 times. 
And here it is. It talks about our meaningless life. Chapter 1, verse 2. Here's his thesis statement. Here's his summary. Right? After an entire life experiment, here's what history's wisest fool concludes. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher. And you say, well, like completely meaningless? Then he adds this, completely meaningless. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. Would you agree? That's a peculiar way to start a book, specifically a, a book of the Bible. Okay. When we see someone, work, school, whatever the case may be, at the grocery store, we ask, how's life? How's life? And then the standard response is, fine. And then we smile and move on with our life. And if you were to ask Solomon, how's life? He would have said, Meaningless. It's completely meaningless. How about you? That's a hard one to respond to. What do you? It's awkward. It's startling. It's unsettling. You can't just sort of nod your head and oh, okay, and walk away. It's it's a troubling statement. I mean, let's face it. We all have days where we feel that way. Correct. Like, this is pointless. This is meaningless. This is hopeless. This is worthless. But, but we, we tend not to say it a lot. And we, and we tend not to say it publicly. And, and if you're a Christian, you know, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. You're supposed to say that, right? You're supposed to say something like positive and hopeful and encouraging and uplifting and edifying. And, you know, well, here, 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 here's how he does it. Everything is meaningless, completely meaningless. Exclamation point. Awkward silence. He's trying to get our attention. He wants us to stop and to, 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 to ponder, to consider, what, what in the world? What in the world is he getting at? And that, that word meaningless that, that launches Ecclesiastes. It appears, like I said, 37 or 38 times, depending upon which translation you use in English. How you define that word is really important because it's how you define the book, which is really important because it's how you define your life. But the answer is dark. It's not just dark, it's an eclipse. It's like the pain of life has fully blotted out any ray of hope. And I'll be honest, I, I've been working on Ecclesiastes on and off, I don't know, since the mid-1990s, maybe 20 years. Um, in college, I got enamored with philosophy, loved studying it, and found the wisdom literature and found it just captivating and have been coming back to Ecclesiastes as one of my favorite books of the Bible for maybe 20 years. This word is still hard to nail down. Uh, that's why different translations will translate it in different ways. This Hebrew word, hevel. The New Living Translation, the New International Version, they'll say that life is meaningless. If you go over to the English Standard Version, the King James Version, the New American Standard Bible, the New King James Version, they'll say that life is vanity. Vanity, vanity. Life is vanity. Uh, it says the same thing in the Revised Standard Version and the New Revised Standard Version. If you go over to the New English Bible, it says that life is empty or emptiness. And it makes sense, doesn't it, that, that the word that he uses to define life is complicated, it's difficult, it's um, awkward, it's a little frustrating, it's uh, tough to get your mind around. You know why? Because life is like that. So it is a perfect word to explain life and the meaning of life because it's not easy. And it feels a little different depending upon when you ponder that great question. I think there is a good case to be made for this word that it means um, fleeting, um, like a breath or a mist on a cold morning. Psalm 144, 4 um, 
talks in this way, using this word. If you've ever gotten up on a cold morning and stepped outside and took a deep breath and pulled the crisp morning air into your lungs and then exhaled to see in a fleeting moment your breath, life is like that. Life was like that. Life is like that. It goes so fast. So if you've ever felt like life was meaningless, like a game of hide and seek with an imaginary friend, if you've ever felt like all your efforts are in vain, like pouring water into a bucket that has no bottom, if you ever felt that life was empty, like your soul was a car that ran out of gas and got stranded on the shoulder of the highway to heaven, then you've had an Ecclesiastes experience. If you've ever just done something like this, you just can't take it anymore. You don't even know what to say. Just a deep guttural breath. That's kind of what Hebel means in Ecclesiastes. If you've ever had an experience where you just didn't know what to say, didn't know what to do, just so frustrated, you just put your lips together and go, it's like that. That's what life is like, according to Ecclesiastes. And I've often wondered um, if Jesus' little brother James didn't do his morning devotionals in Ecclesiastes when he wrote this in James 4.14, your life is like the morning fog. It's here a little while and then it's gone. And here's the, here's the truth. Life moves really quickly. I mean, it's, it's crazy. When you're young, everybody says, oh, you grew up so fast. And when you get old, you realize that you're looking at people saying, oh, you grew up so fast. You're saying the same thing. I mean, it's crazy. I blinked and my oldest daughter's graduating from high school this year. I, I, I swear, 15 minutes ago, she was three and I was giving her a piggyback ride. I mean, it's, my 15 year old son is taller than me, which is not a huge accomplishment. They don't give you a prize for that. But I can, I can remember holding him in my arms when he was born. I mean, life moves so fast. And I believe what Solomon is saying is an old man, it's kind of like sitting down with your wise grandpa who did a lot and had a lot, but didn't enjoy a lot. And he tells you, let me tell you some things, kids. Looking back, there's a lot of things I did wrong and I would do differently. Ecclesiastes is a book like that. What he's saying is all the marketers and the advertisers and the hustlers, don't, don't chase all the mirages they set up for you. There's nothing there. It's a goose chase with no goose, as one author says. That's his thesis. That's where we begin. And then he moves into work under the sun, saying in Ecclesiastes 1, verses 3 through 7, what do people get for all their hard work under the sun, right? Sounds like a, a union meeting. My dad was a union drywaller. What do we get for all our hard work under the sun? There's the question. Here's the answer. Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. All right, the tree in your yard it was there before you got here. It'll be here long after you're gone. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. The water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Here's this question. Why do we work so hard? I mean, I'm assuming, I'm assuming you work hard. Right? You, if you're a kid, you got chores and schoolwork. If you're a homeowner, got to maintain your home. You got a job. You got to work your job. You're a parent. You got to raise your kids. You got a marriage. You got to work on your relationship. You're in some civic or community organization or cause. You volunteer. Give your time. You got family and friends, loved ones who are sick or struggling or suffering. Got to work to help them. Part of a church, well, you're going to take on a position of service and volunteer and help and pour yourself into others. And life is just pour out, pour out, pour out, pour out, pour out. And he pulls back and he says, let's just ask this question. What do we get for all of this? Ready for the answer? Nothing. Nothing. You ever felt that way? You ever felt like, well, why, why do I get out of bed in the morning? 
Why do I even go to work? Why do I even care? Why do I even try? It's pointless. It's worthless. It's fruitless. It's hopeless. Have you ever felt that way? You're probably already feeling it, right? I mean, it just got real dark. This is not the book. If somebody came up to you and said, I am really struggling with depression, you probably wouldn't tell them. You know what you need to do is read Ecclesiastes. They'll, they'll perk you right up. Um, I think it was Moby Dick said that uh, Ecclesiastes is the most honest book ever written. I'm working from memory. Boy, this is an honest book, amen? But here's the key. There was a phrase here in verse three, chapter one, verse three, Ecclesiastes. Under the sun. Sometimes he'll also say under heaven, depending upon which translation you're using in the English. It appears around 29 times, depending upon which Bible you're reading under the sun. This is crucial. This is key. This is, this is him setting the parameters, the limitations of his life experiment. This is life without connection to or revelation from God. Under the sun would mean under God. We don't know who God is. We don't know where God is. We don't know if there is a God. God hasn't shown up. God hasn't spoken. We're on our own, right? So from that, you could have atheism. There is no God. You could have deism. If there is a God, he's an absentee landlord to quote Al Pacino. We don't know who he is or where he is or what he's doing. We're on our own. Um, or you could even believe that maybe there is a God, but he's not a God who's personal active, imminent, present in any way, okay? This is life viewed without reference to God. This is life lived without a word from God. Um, you know, conservative Bible reading, Jesus loving grandmas would call this worldly. This is, this is a worldly view of the world. This is how people who don't know the God of the Bible see life, live life, and evaluate life. This is life as the world sees it, not life as God sees it. Okay, and here's what he says, ready? Okay, if you're under, if you're under 30, especially under 20, just buckle up, the airbag's about to deploy. This is gonna be really discouraging and your parents and grandparents are gonna know exactly what he's talking about. Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. Okay, here's what he's saying. Every generation thinks that, you know what? We're gonna fix it. The generation before us, they got it wrong. We're gonna get it right. They were foolish, we're wise. They were silly, we're smart. They were selfish, we are selfless. They had a bunch of bad ideas, we've got a bunch of good ideas. They were very lazy and we're going to get to work. And every generation thinks that and every generation sort of comes up with their little plan to fix, to change, to save the world. And evangelical friends, we are the same. This is why young people love causes. You need breakfast, lunch, dinner, and a cause. I mean, it's just, you got to have a cause, right? Some and I'm going to do my thing and my thing is going to change the world and the world is going to be better. And then heaven will come on earth and we're going to enter into a much better future. Let's all rally together, dig deep. We can change the world. And to quote Ecclesiastes, no, you're not. No, you're not. Every generation has thought that from the beginning. And when you got here, it was still messed up. Pretty discouraging, right? Or brutally honest, insightful, and helpful. Could save you a lot of disillusionment. 
generation gets together and decides, that's it. We're going to make our run and run, 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 run. And nobody looks down to realize it's on a treadmill. The same treadmill that your parents ran on and the same treadmill that your grandparents ran on and the same treadmill that their great, great, great grandparents ran on. And you may be working hard and running fast and meaning well, but you ain't going nowhere. Nothing is changing. That's his, that's his view of all our work under the sun. You know what happens to people who live their life only working under the sun? They get depressed because this is the logical, reasonable conclusion. Some even become suicidal because if it's all pointless, it's all meaningless, it's all hopeless, when it hurts too much, then just give up. I hope you're starting to see that Ecclesiastes is incredibly insightful. This, friends, is an, is an amazing book. It's, it's not an old book. It's an eternal book. There's a, a vast difference between the two. An old book gets old. An eternal book never gets old. An old book is timely. An eternal book is timeless. An old book is for yesterday. An eternal book is for every day. I've always thought that certain books of the Bible, it's like the Holy Spirit lights the wick and they explode. So in the time of the Reformation with Calvin and Luther, it's a book like Galatians or a book like Romans in our day. Man, it seems like Ecclesiastes is, it's the arrow that hits the bullseye of the malaise of the mood of our meaningless age. It's unbelievably on point. So we'll keep going. Next, he's going to talk about driving around the cul-de-sac, chapter one, verse eight. Here he goes. Everything is worrisome beyond description. I mean, some of you are extroverts. You're optimistic. You're hopeful. You live in sunny places. Your parents were nice to you. You don't quite see life this way, but a lot of you know exactly how he feels. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. Is that true? Not, not content? I mean, how many images will you see this week? He says, you'll never be satisfied. How many things will you hear this week? He says, you'll never be satisfied. And here's what he's saying. Um, that we are not moving upward, we are driving around a cul-de-sac. Um, let me try and explain this to you. Um, when I was in school, I went to public school, didn't become a Christian until I was freshman in college. And we were taught typical, normal, regular evolution and basically taught with a chart up front that uh, every generation is moving forward. I think C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. Um, that the guys before us, they were sort of primitive, you know, a little, little less wise and insightful and advanced and developed than we are. So, so we're ahead of them, which means we could sort of look down on those who came before us and and it can lead to not really studying history or paying attention to those who've gone before us because after all, they were, you know, this four guys back on the evolutionary chart with a slope forehead who doesn't have a thumb. So, you know, what's he got to teach me? And the result is we tend to think that new is improved, that bigger is better, and that if we just get more, if we get more money, if we get more education, if we get more soldiers, if we get more sex, if we get more power, if we get more fame, if we get more glory, if we get more money, if we, if we get more government, if we get more friends, if we get more family, we just need more. And if we get more, then all of a sudden the, the life on earth will get better. Um, and what he's saying here is uh, 
that life is not an evolutionary chart where you're ahead of the guy before you, that life is a cul-de-sac and every generation drives around it thinking that they're making progress when they're not. You know, my first date with Grace, my wife's name is Grace. Um, we, uh, we had a first date, March 12th, 1988. And, uh, I had a 1956 Chevy four doors, 60,000 total original miles automatic. And I, I sold it some years later cause I didn't think it was cool. I, I don't, you know, so since we're talking about foolishness, I'll just put that on the list. My first date, I went to pick up Grace in my uh, 1956 Chevy, and I was so nervous uh, to pick her up that uh, I drove around the block many, many times, and her parents lived on a cul-de-sac, you know, a circle. And I drove by the house trying to, as a 17-year-old kid, drum up the courage to pull over and go in and meet her parents and take her out. And didn't muster up the courage, drove by, drove around the cul-de-sac, okay. Trying to talk myself into this, deep breath, nah, not quite ready. I don't know how many laps I did around the cul-de-sac. I'm sure I looked ridiculous. And I was moving, but I wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't making any progress. I was just covering the same ground over and over and over. And, and Solomon's, this is a worldview that he's giving us. His worldview is that life lived under the sun, life lived apart from God. If we come from no one and we're going nowhere, then we have no reason to be here. That life is um, under the sun, it's a, it's a cul-de-sac, it's a, it's a circle. It's, it's meaningless, it's a waste of time, it's silliness. That all we do is the same thing that people before us did and we don't really change anything or move anywhere. And, and we can look at Solomon and you could say, well, you know, if I had more money, Solomon said, you can't have any more money than me. Well, if I lived in a bigger house, you can't get a bigger house than his. Well, if I had, you know, more enjoyable private experiences, fill in the blank, well, 700 wives, 300 concubines, well, if, if I had more insight, wisest man who's ever lived next to Jesus Christ. Well, if I had more stuff, well, this guy had multiple palaces to hold all his stuff. I mean, you may have a, a storage locker, but he's got palaces to hold his stuff. Well, if I just ate better food, nobody ate better food than he did. Well, if I just drank better wine, well, nobody drank better wine than he did. Maybe, maybe King Solomon was the first American. His fridge was, was, his fridge was full. His bank account was full. His social itinerary was full. His wine and liquor cabinet was full. His resume was full. His bedroom was full. His soul was empty. And what he's saying is, hey kids, I've taken the lap around the cul-de-sac. I've tried it all, I promise you. You can't get, have, do more than me. And it's meaningless. It's vanity. It's purposeless. It's a drive around a cul-de-sac and then you die and someone else jumps in your car and drives around the cul-de-sac talking about how silly you were and how smart they are and how they're really making progress. It's like he's got the gift of discouragement, amen? Well, we'll read another verse if we don't make any progress. Uh, final section for our study today, he talks about vintage vanity. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 9, 10, and 11. Here we go. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Some people say, maybe you're one of them, here is something new. I have a new idea, I have a new plan, I have a new insight, I have a new outlook, I have a new breakthrough, he says. But actually, it is old. 
Nothing is ever truly new. You can say, well, who are you? You say, well, the second smartest man who's lived in the history of the world. He says in verse 11, we don't remember what happened in the past. At future generations, no one will remember what we're doing now. You say, no, that's not true. What I'm doing is a big deal. It's gonna make a difference. People will remember me. No, they won't. Okay, pick your favorite sport. Do you like baseball, basketball, football, soccer, golf, whatever, okay? Think of the pinnacle of your favorite sport. Super Bowl, college bowl game, Final Four, NBA championship, October Classic for baseball and World Series winner, Super Bowl winner, whatever. Pick the pinnacle of your favorite sport, okay? What individual or team won the championship seven years ago? You don't know. I don't know. We don't know. Because no one remembers. Even the thing that dominates the headlines one day is gone the next day. And so he, he really pops the hipster balloon here. Um, you know, people wearing vintage clothes, sitting on vintage furniture, thinking that they have new ideas. And he's saying, actually, your ideas are vintage too. Here's what he's saying. You're not going to make a difference. You're not going to change anything. You don't have an idea that somebody else didn't already have. You don't have a plan that somebody else didn't already try. It may be new to you, but it ain't new. What you're staying up all night stressed out about might not even matter, probably doesn't. Even if you do good things, people probably won't remember you once you're gone. And the sad thing is, the worse somebody is, the more we remember them, so everybody knows who Adolf Hitler is. Brutal, painful, truthful. You're gonna die. They're gonna put your name in the obituary. No one's gonna read it. And then they're gonna move on with their life. The end. Now, if that seems dark, bleak, hopeless, it is because friends, that's life under the sun. If you're not gonna to go to God and get rewarded, see the world can give awards, God gives rewards. If you're not gonna to go to God and get rewarded for your life, on this cursed, fallen, crooked, difficult planet, then it's meaningless, it's hopeless, it's purposeless. When I was a kid, they uh, took us up to a camp. I think it was in fifth, sixth grade, something like that. And, uh, took us city kids outdoors to the wilderness, show us what a tree looks like, and show us that water actually doesn't come from a tap, but it comes from a river stuff like that. And I remember the, probably a college kid was given a little lecture and said, uh, you know, to live, you need uh, food, air, water, clothing, and shelter. I think that's what they said. I would add one thing to the list. You need hope. And there are people who have food, air, water, shelter, and clothing, but they don't have any hope. And what Solomon is saying is that life lived under the sun, life lived not in connection to God or with a revelation from God is a hopeless life. It's a dark life. It's a, it's a, it's a painful, arduous, meaningless life. It's, it's chasing the wind. It's like someone deciding they want to have a wind collection. And so at various points and places, they run outside with their arms outstretched, trying to capture the wind so that they could take it home and add it to their wind collection. It, it, it's irrational, it's illogical. He says that life lived apart from God is life like that. And what, what we need is some hope. Right? If all life is, is a fool's parade where we march together, step in step, until we fall off a cliff into nothing, then why keep going? Okay, so, so what, what's Solomon doing here? I mean, if you're still listening, it's because you have a high threshold for pain. I appreciate you hanging in there, but 
but what he is doing is he is creating an appetite, right? This is, uh, this is what a good restaurant will do before they bring forth the main course. They will, they will prepare the appetite. What Solomon is saying here is that, that we should hunger and thirst to use, um, to use language from elsewhere in Scripture that there should be something in us that feels like our soul is parched and, and we need, you know, living fresh water, that our souls are empty and they are hungry and we need a morsel or a feast of good news. What Solomon is saying is, I have, I have investigated everything under the sun and I'm here to tell you that there's nothing that satisfies the soul. Well, the result is we have to start looking elsewhere. If there's nothing under the sun that is satisfying to the soul that quenches the thirst or calms the appetite, we have to look elsewhere. Maybe above the sun is another world in which God lives. Maybe it's a world that's not crooked and broken and failing and flying and bleeding and wounding and harming and dying. Maybe, maybe we come from that God. Maybe we're here not abandoned, possibly even to be visited by that God. Maybe he would come down under the sun and maybe he would provide meaning and hope and health and healing to the broken and the bleeding and the weeping and the grieving and the self-medicating and the dying. Maybe one day when it's all said and done, he would take us to his home and he would reward us for our life under the sun. Maybe we would no longer feast alone, but we would feast at his table. Maybe we would no longer um, long for something that is only found in relationship with him, in presence of him, in eternity with him. Um, in closing, I, I hope maybe a word picture will help. Um, most books of the Bible are a portrait, and I believe Ecclesiastes is a silhouette. And in a portrait, you can make out the features of someone um, by presence, the presence of their features in a silhouette, you get to know someone by their absence. Um, Ecclesiastes is a silhouette. It's a book where God is absent. It's, it's a book where God is absent from our lives. But if we pull back and reframe our gaze with faith, I, I'm beginning to see here uh, the silhouette of Jesus. Thanks for tuning in. We'll See you next week as we continue our study in Ecclesiastes.